The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to Very Loose Women. Welcome to this special episode. In the studio tonight, as ever, Emma. Hi, Emma. Hi, Leah. And Luke and Liz Hodgkin. Hi, Luke and Liz. Hi. Now, Luke actually came on the show last year, but I somehow failed to save the episode. Came on to speak about activism he was involved in, which is how I met him. And here he is again in the studio with Emma and I and with his sister Liz on a completely different topic. We're going to be speaking about his mother, their mother, Dorothy Hodgkin. First of all, to introduce the topic, Emma and I have actually spoken to a friend of ours, Kay, who is a chemistry teacher and who already knew about Dorothy Hodgkin before we started talking about this show. Kay, what do you do? I'm a secondary school chemistry teacher. And do you know anything about Dorothy Hodgkin? I have heard about her just, you know, like you hear about a lot of scientists when you're a scientist. But I mainly found out about her when I was making a play on one of my lab walls about female scientists and she was one of the six which I picked with a picture and a brief description of what she did. And what did she do? She was an X-ray crystallographer and she elucidated the structure of insulin and vitamin B12. Have you ever done any X-ray crystallography yourself, Kay? During my master's project, I used that technique to elucidate the structures of different superconductors using an X-ray diffractometer, which would have been much more advanced than the machines that she was using back in the day. And why is she such a hero? She is such a hero because of, well, being a British woman to win the Nobel Prize. And also she was quite famed for nurturing a lot of young female scientists um, through her laboratory, um, including Margaret Thatcher. As you heard in that clip, Dorothy Hodgkin was a British biochemist who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1964. And among other advances, she, would you say, deciphered the structure of insulin? She took photos of it. And she remains the only British woman to have been awarded a Nobel Prize for science. That's the kind of summary that you can find on the internet very quickly. I just gave this brief introduction of what your mother is famous for. Um, But Luke and Liz, how would you describe her to someone who didn't really know about her? Well, she was a very focused person. She was um, very involved in what she was doing. On the other hand, she was in some ways, a pretty ordinary person. I mean, it's wrong to describe her as someone who had an extraordinary career and was above the ordinary realm of people. She liked what she was doing. She was very focused on what she was doing. She was very, very interested in crystal structures. That was what she did. And they are interesting if you want to get interested in them. Would you add anything to that, Liz? Yeah, I would say too. She had a great joy in what she was doing. And I'd tell a story to put into perspective her her ordinariness. There was one Sudanese whom I sent to come and stay with my parents. And he had lunch with the family. And then he said, "Uh, could I possibly meet your wife? My father said, that's my wife. And he said, oh, I thought she was the housekeeper because she was carrying plates and things back and forwards. The first time I asked Luke about doing the show, he actually texted me saying there are some stories that that I wanted to tell, that he wanted to tell. And the first one he mentioned was about changing a fuse. So what is the story and why... Why did you want to tell it's it? Hardly, it's hardly an important story, but it is. it does show that she was kind of practical. And um, I learned how to change a fuse, which nobody does these days, from my mother. She taught me how you break off a piece of fuse wire and run it through the hole in the fuse and um, the other, the rest of the business. She was 
intensely practical in that sort of way. The same goes for other things that she was good at, like putting up tents. We had to put up tents because we were out camp. We had chosen to go and have a camping holiday. And um, not everybody, not everybody's mother knows how to, or knew at that time, how to uh, put up a tent, but she did. And she did it without fuss and efficiently. She was good at it and she enjoyed it too, I'd say. So did you have a sense that your mum was different to maybe your friends' mums when you were growing up, if she had all these practical skills? Difficult to say, but I think that's right because I think um, many of my friends' mums were not very practical. Uh, but you don't, I didn't compare. Oh, well, I did. When we were kids, you know, I felt, yeah, I wish she wore sort of, she was more elegant and she wore lipstick and she wore, she really cared about her appearance like the other girls' mums. We actually found a clip online, and this is courtesy of uh, the Biochemical Society and webofstories.com, where you can hear more clips like this, where Dorothy is talking about developing this early interest in science. Chemistry, of course, in a little class in England in a course that where the children were introduced to chemistry to one science term, and chemistry was the first one, and it began with a session in which we grew crystals, and I just liked doing this ever afterwards. So that was uh, Dorothy on how she was just in school. She was at a local grammar school, I think. Uh, is that is that correct? Yeah. And she started growing crystals, and that is what set her off for her whole career. You mentioned earlier that there was a girl in her in the same class who couldn't apply to university. Could you give us a sense of what she was up against at the time? Um, no, this it just shows how your parents make a difference in what you think you can attain. My mother's parents, for sure, my grandfather had wanted to have boys and he had four girls. So he decided to bring up the girls as though they were boys and he thought that they should go to university. But this was a school, he sent them to the state school, the ordinary state school in the town and where most of the kids were sort of farmers children who thought of going to teachers' training college if they were going to have a kind of academic career at all. In the chemistry class, there were only two girls. So the other girl actually got higher marks than she'd got in chemistry, but her parents sent her to Loughborough Training College to do domestic science and to become a primary school teacher. And in the end, she died young, sadly, from TB. And my mother went on to get into Oxford, coached to get into Oxford, and became a Nobel Prize winner. So she had to take supplementary classes to get yes, into Yes, she Oxford. had to take Latin, extra additional mathematics, and extra science and so on in order to get to Oxford. And in 1932, she was awarded a first-class honours at Oxford and apparently the third woman to ever achieve this. You, you mentioned an experience earlier on where she really, really wanted to go to a lecture... And she was carried out. Was this during her undergraduate degree? She, yes. It, or, no, I think she was a graduate. It was the okay. Olympic Club. And it was an all-male club. And she wanted to go and listen to the lecture. And she was carried out physically from the lecture. It shows that there was still anti-women. I mean, women were still... But, I, th- I think uh, that very amp- still, com- completely proves that point. Oxford, yeah. They had yeah, yeah, sure. No, that, I mean, uh, <laughs> it's taken a long, long time for there to be the kind of equality which we have now. And certainly it wasn't there in the 60s and it very, very much wasn't there in the 40s. In her working life, she was already facing challenges as a woman, but she seemed to be juggling 
research and raising children. Have you got any recollections from when you were growing up of how she was kind of going about this and doing this? Well, she always tried to manage both aspects of her life. And she was, as you say, juggling research and raising children. And she did the best she could under the circumstances. Now, that meant, if necessary, getting help. And she got quite a good bit of help from friends. We had a nanny. And I mean, that's the difference between the women at that time and the women now, you, you don't think that you're going to get a nanny, so it's much more difficult for a woman to be as focused on science and to work as hard on science as, as she did. She had a very strong work ethic. You told a story about the excitement that she felt after the first insulin photograph. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Shall I? OK, it was... Uh, I mean, it was a story that she told that when she took the first insulin photograph and she saw through, you, ta- you take a photograph ex- uh, through the, the crystal and you see the blobs of light which are showing where the atoms are going to be in the molecule. And she was so overjoyed, it was about two o'clock in the morning, she went out into the streets of Oxford to go home and sort of dancing a bit. And a policeman came by and stopped her and said, what on earth are you doing? We're going to go on to talk about other parts of her career. But first, we're going to play Lord Kitchener, Birth of Ghana, which is a song we'll discuss the choice in a second after we've played it. Ghana, Ghana is the name. Ghana, we wish to proclaim. We will be jolly, merry and gay. The 6th of March, Independence Day. That was Lord Kitchener, Birth of Ghana. Why Why did you choose the song? It's an odd choice, but um, my father was a close friend of Dr Nkrumah, who was, uh, the, in a way, the national figure in founding the Republic of Ghana. And um, when Ghana got its independence, which, as the song says, is, was the 6th of March, 1957, this... Um, Caribbean Calypsonian uh, Lord Kitchener wrote this song called Birth of Ghana and uh, it was very popular at the time. And then seven years later it so happened that both our father and our mother were in Ghana where our father was at head of the Department of African Studies at the University of Ghana when she heard she got the Nobel Prize. So that was a Ghanaian Nobel Prize. And we forgot to say she was born in Cairo, so that in two ways, African. Yes. While we were playing that song, the engineer, Freddie, said, what is X-ray crystallography? So can you repeat maybe what you said, Freddie, for the listeners? You take a photograph of the crystal but it's an X-ray photograph, so it has. Uh, it's not a photograph of exactly of the crystal, but it's a photograph of lines running through the crystal, which show shadows of what's behind. When you've got that, you've not got anything like what you really want. What you really want is a sort of reconstruction of how the crystal is from these spots that you get on the screen. It's quite a complicated fr- process to reconstruct the picture or the actual structure of the molecule from this photograph. That is how the atoms are arranged in a molecule so that then you can see how how the vitamin B12, penicillin, insulin actually works 
when it's used. Those are the discoveries that mm-hmm. those that's what she first started yeah. looking at, and that's what um, Kay mentioned that she's known for as well. Just in relation to this Nobel Prize, Emma, you mentioned a few headlines that you came across. Yeah, so it was really interesting when I spoke to Kay, our scientist friend. One of the first things she said to me was, you know, she's the um, Dorothy Hodgkin was a very kind of well-renowned and obviously Nobel Prize-winning scientist, and she's pointed she pointed me in the direction of the kind of very sexist, I think, headlines that kind of hit the news when she won this great um, achievement. So there are just a couple that I wanted to read out just because I thought it was quite shocking. When it happened, it was 1964. The Daily Telegraph announced, British woman wins Nobel Prize, £18,750 prize to mother of three. Wow. Um, which is not the worst one. Um, the Daily Mail said, Oxford housewife wins Nobel. Um, and the Observer in its write-up said, affable looking housewife Mrs. Hodgkin had won the prize for a thoroughly unhousewifely skill, the structure of crystals of great chemical interest. And Luke, I think you had another one that wasn't in this article that I was reading. It was I, Granny I Boffin. I was Mail had Granny Boffin. Oh, that was, yeah, yeah, Granny Boffin. I like that. It's a bit ridiculous. But yeah, were you guys kind of aware of that at the time, that sort of response? And do you know how she might have felt about those kind of ridiculous headlines. I think she knew that that was the way it was going to be treated because, frankly, do you expect the press to understand anything about um, scientific work? Not really. I mean, not then and not now, I think. I think, yeah, actually, my dad, who well, he's a mathematician, but, like, I think one of his pet hates is, like, when there's a scientific reporting in the news, you know, people have discovered this or whatever, when they're referred to as boffins... That's yes. like one of his pet peeves, like boffins fine out. It's like, yes. I don't know, quite patronising, quite funny. But yeah, I found that quite interesting. And also the use of unhousewifely. Yes, that was very... <laughs> As if she shouldn't be doing it. But um, something else that Kay also mentioned was that Dorothy Hodgkin was famous for also supervising and maybe also taking under her wing lots of female scientists. Is that something you guys are aware of? And I don't think we were aware of it to its full extent, but she was, uh, I mean, she was a terrific supervisor. That was almost as important as the as the research that is that she was able to take care of students and to help them and uh, use them and that they would in their turn contribute to her work and partly because she was a very democratic leader of a of a team everyone called each other by their christian names which was there in labs at that time and everyone, I mean, everyone worked together. And actually, sorry, on the topic of names, that's something that I think we were wondering about as well. So obviously, like, she was a well-established scientist, maybe under her maiden name. Did she at some point decide to change and, and move on to her married name? Uh, or how did that work? Uh, it's not quite clear why, but I do remember that she told me that she decided to give up her maiden name. No, I heard something different, that they just corrected the paper that she wrote under the name of Dorothy Crowfoot, which was her name, maiden name and thought, yeah, but she's married. This is early 1940s. We put, or late 1940s, if you remember it, and they put Dorothy Hodgkin and that she said to you, I lost, today I lost my maiden name. Well, she said that. That's Mm -hmm. for sure. Why she lost it or how she lost it Mm -hmm. is another question. And in context, you were born in 1932, is that correct? 1938. You don't reveal someone's age on air like that. Wait, so that was was 1940 when she told you about... uh, That was about... 1944. 1944, okay. And you still remember that. That's I, I don't think I remember anything from when I was six. Well, from the past five minutes, really. <laughs> or that, yeah. Um, so you've said she's very democratic. And do you think that maybe that kind of affected your ambitions or made you feel like, you know, for example, as a young woman, that you were able to do things that maybe other young women might not have felt they were able to do? 
And did you guys ever feel any pressure or interest in being scientists? I knew that she wanted us, us to be a scientist and Luke was a mathematician, so that that's close to it. But I wasn't leaning that way. And it's a very, it's a sort of sad thing that none of her female descendants, as they said on her centenary, have become a scientist. And it's a sad thing of the sort of scientists and women in science. But you never felt any pressure to become a chemist? Well, she didn't put pressure to be in the best in the class, which was good, because I only once won a prize at secondary school. But that was great not to have the pressure, because I know some children of Nobel Prize winners who have got really blemished by the pressure to try to equal their parents. Mm. And... I didn't bother. No way. No, higher, I didn't. Higher pressure on you because you were yes, more of a genius. Yes, but um, I, didn't, I didn't feel that it mattered in that kind of way because that was something about the sort of democratic ethic in the family, which was that we were valued not for our achievements but for who we were. Margaret Thatcher was a chemist at Somerville and your mother was her tutor. How did that relationship pan out given what I know about your mother is that their political beliefs were very different? Um, obviously it was a relationship of chemist to chemist but do you remember anything oh, from that time? She did her fourth year in crystallography under my mother so that was quite quite something but my mother was very careful when she was interviewed not to sort of speak badly of her but she said you know, she wasn't really interested. She was really interested in something else, i.e. political career, mm. rather than, than chemistry. But um, in the 1980s, when I was living with my mother, after my father died, um, the Russian scientists who were close to my mother wrote to her and said, what is happening? Mrs. Thatcher doesn't regard us Russians as human, as Soviets as human. And she was, your, she was your pupil. Can't you go and talk to her and persuade her that we were, were human? So then after she won the next election, she did ask for a meeting and went to visit her. I, I don't know whether it had any effect. It was more likely world politics, which gradually caused the, yes. the change between East and West. She could take some credit, maybe. <laughs> um, I know you, you also told like a really nice story about her humming. I don't know if you want to really oh, that yes. anecdote. Well, um, that's the kind of memory you have. You always have about people you know and feel close to, because she was concentrating on something, concentrating on probably on work. She would um, she would start humming, usually a, a hymn tune. Um, actually, I think particularly through the night and of doubt and sorrow, onward comes the Hillgrim Band. Yeah, and the um, student said she found it really sort of comforting that she was humming that at the same time as she was trying to work out the solution to the problem she was working at. Yes, <laughs> I've got a quote here uh, that she liked to say: "It's such such a waste of time to quarrel with people." It gives me the impression that she was quite diplomatic. It's a kind of, um, it's an odd approach to politics, isn't it? Yes, it's a quite special approach to politics. But it's a waste of time. I mean, if you're working, really, her life was geared to the children and her work. And then when she became the Nobel Prize, got the Nobel Prize, she suddenly became somebody famous who was put at the head of organisations. And then she became much more active politically. She was put at the head of medical aid for Vietnam, so she visited Vietnam. She became the head of Pugwash, which is the Scientist for Peace organisation. So then she became active politically. You both seem very politically active, so that must have had some effect on you. 
We were already politically active. Oh, right. I, think <laughs> that's right. I think I think that's right. Fifties. Nuclear I, disar- I, campaign if, for nuclear disarmament. If you think of the if you think of the period, it was just natural as the air we breathed in a in a way. It was not a matter of parental influence. I think I may be wrong about this. So we actually have to start wrapping up. There's obviously so much more we could discuss. Before I finish, thanks so much uh, Luke and Liz for coming on the show we are Very Loose Swimming you can find us on Twitter at VLW Radio before we finish we're going to play the song Were You There When They Crucified My Lord why did you choose this song? It was one of a number of songs which really resonated because it belongs to that period it belongs to left politics in the 1930s uh, which are sort of in some way tied in with religion and, and spirituality so I'm going to play it now. This is Where You There When They Crucified My Lord by Paul Robeson. <laughs> 